Let's go live with Jack Kelly. Welcome to the one-of-a-kind LinkedIn live show that will help you with your job search and advancing your career. We will bring in educated career experts who will share their insights and give you inside tips on how to be successful in your job search. Now let's get into today's show with your host, Jack Kelly. So we are, we are now live. Here we go. So, so today we have an awesome panel and we're going to talk about what's happening in the compliance, legal, regulatory you know, state in this sector. See, what are the trends? What's happening? Where do we see things changing? What is going to mean for the job market? Where are, going to be, where are there going to be the opportunities? So I figured we could just dive right in. And Eric, maybe you want to talk a little bit about some of the different themes that we're noticing and how that's going to impact people in their careers. Well, as we said last month, for one thing, the, the entry of uh, the Biden administration should ramp up uh, a number of things, more rules, more ESG-driven related themes, um, certainly more enforcement. That's, that's the likelihood. What does that mean for jobs? Uh, I think compliance uh, has always been on the map, but is a brighter spot on the map. And we'll talk about skill sets in, in a moment, but it, it is uh, evolving in a very revolutionary time, whether externally uh, or, or internally. So we'll talk more about that. And with the environment, Allison, that's something it seems like you're very passionate about ESG. Do you see a lot of changes happening with this new administration now? Yeah, so I think um, the 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 roots of ESG, right, are companies doing voluntary things that are not driven by legal and regulatory requirements. Um, but if you want to get corporations to be more advanced on things like climate change or human rights, um, then a certain proportion of them aren't going to pay any attention until these things are regulated. So certainly something that, as Eric's already mentioned, that we can anticipate is more regulation of environmental and social issues and possibly a rethink on corporate governance in general. So this obviously brings all these issues to the attention of the compliance team. They haven't been front and center for the compliance team until now because there's usually a team called sustainability or corporate citizenship or CSR or maybe ESG um, paying attention to those and writing the reports but we're seeing a really huge driver internationally even more so in Europe than in the US and um, with convergence of these two fields so it's definitely an interesting time from both perspectives and you definitely see compliance officers really enthusiastically now trying to get to grips with ESG issues. So what, what kind of compliance jobs would there be there? You know, compliance, legal, risk, audit? I don't think it's so much that there would be new jobs, no, but okay. that if ESG issues are regulated rather than being voluntary and what the company chooses yeah. to do, then there are very, very different implications to those initiatives, to the reporting of the data, to the assurance of the data. You've started to see um, not so much in the US, but internationally, a lot more class action lawsuits about things where um, the, the, um, the litigation is saying this company said it had a commitment to protecting human rights and then it did this awful thing. Therefore, its disclosures were lying. So you start to see compliance officers having to pay a lot more attention to that data, whether that data is accurate, whether that data is reliable um, and whether that data can lead to litigation. So yeah. I think, you know, it really behooves compliance officers to understand the field. I'm a bit concerned that a lot of compliance people think ESG is just compliance plus, and it's actually um, a very, very kind of complicated and nuanced field. So um, I do think there's a pretty big learning curve here. Jack, if I could just quickly chime in, compliance should have always been involved, but now I think they'll be more visible. And if they're more proactive, they'll be earlier on as deals are being put together, whether they be green bonds or green financing or social issues, they should be at the table already. Um, and that'll, I, I would say that's the one change going forward. So Eric, Carolyn, Howard, you guys have steeped into more traditional investment banking, brokerage now with this whole social media frenzy where you see like GameStop 
and all these stonks, these mean stonks <laughs> with an A, uh, with an N and not a C, just going parabolic and crypto going crazy. What do you think? I mean, is this kind of the new normal? Is there going to be more regulatory oversight of the space? Um, have you even seen stuff like this before? And I know, Carolyn, you're now in a cool FanDuel techie, but you still have you know, your roots in this space. So you, you, you know both worlds. Um, I don't know, Jack, do you mind if I go first? Sure, go ahead. So look, I, I think the, the short answer is yes, we will see a lot more regulation in this space because there needs to be. The markets are incredibly volatile right now. We've seen things that we really haven't seen in, 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 in the past. Um, and what you're seeing is the market not necessarily trading on fundamentals and on value any longer, but you're seeing the market trade on social media activity and people jumping on and off the bandwagon with both cryptocurrencies and now we've seen it in, in stock. So I, I think one of the things is people should remember over the last four years, there was regulation. It wasn't like you could do whatever you want. There was a lot of regulation. The question is, how does the regulation evolve to the markets and the products and what we're seeing going on. And I think we're seeing, you know, obviously we're in the middle of a pandemic. I, I don't know about you, but a lot of people I know, they're working from home. Um, they have a TV in their office, so they have CNBC. And all of a sudden we have everybody who only wants to talk about what they're investing in. Um, kids in college that have apps on their phone and they wake up and they're just going, hey, I'm going to buy this. I'm going to do that. Um, can I just interject one second? You yeah. know, it's crazy. So because of what I do for a living as a recruiter, oftentimes parents who know what I do will say, hey, you know, can you talk to my kid? Can you just give him some advice, <laughs> right? And I've spoken to a few kids and they start talking to me. These are college kids and they're rattling off what they're trading, what options they're trading. what And, and I'm like, how, like you're 19. What do you know about trading options and puts and calls? So to your point, yeah, it's really runs the gamut of, of like every, it, it seems almost like every other person you come across has a stock they want to tout and tell you about. Well, grandfathers and grandmothers are trading too. We can't forget them. Oh, it's, it's everyone. <laughs> it's so wild. So I'm sorry. I, I, right, I, but I, just, really I, I think it goes back to my point that the regulation needs to evolve with what's going yeah. on. And, and most importantly, especially in the U.S., but globally, we want to make sure that we have fair and orderly markets where everyone can participate, where information is shared with folks at the same time and in a consistent manner. And, I, and hopefully that's what the current administration is going to be focusing on. Now, Carolyn, you're in an interesting spot because, and, and I apologize for being rude. I think we just jump right into it. So maybe as we talk, you guys can introduce who you are and what you do, but I figure let's just get it started. So you have the advantage of being with JP Morgan for years, now at FanDuel. So what do, what do you think of this? And are there, is it the same thing with gaming where it could just get wild and out of control? Yeah, so um, thanks Jack. So I'm the Chief Risk and Compliance Officer at FanDuel, which is a, has daily fantasy um, engagement and sports betting and online gambling and horse racing and all sorts of, of fun things like that. Um, and I think one of the things that I worry about all the time is how do we ingest what we're seeing out in the blogosphere, out on Twitter? How do we think about all of that activity, both from a FanDuel perspective, as it relates to customer engagement, um, you know, it, it kind of like in your GameStop theory where there could be some mass group think that evolves and how does that impact compliance at a sports betting company um, or commercial at a sports betting company, frankly, and then the risks there. But there are other risks that also we have to struggle to sort of ingest in a, in a sort of hygienic way that can be processed and measured things like what Allison was talking about, the, the more esoteric sort of impact on a green economy. How, how does one ingest that? And then what you're talking about with the GameStop or something that's going on in a Twitter sphere, how do I, as a chief compliance officer, ingest that information in such a way at a speed that's required so that I can sort of see it, understand it, measure it, and get it to the necessary folks to make informed and 
proactive decisions about something that is happening really, really fast. And on a well, how do you do that? That's a good question. Like, how do you do that? Because there's a whole new emerging area, right? I mean, you have yeah. DraftKings, you guys, but this is, if I'm not mistaken, this is really kind of new stuff. It is. And I think a, a, a company like FanDuel or DraftKings, where you are sort of more integrated into the online sphere by being an online tech company, everything we do is sort of geared at data and big data um, so that, you know, as a tech company, we're the company is made up of engineering and many, many tools and the use of AI and all sorts of um, more forward thinking technology solutions. The compliance and risk world within a company like that has to mirror the behaviors of the other people in the company, but also of the consumers out there. So that our technology on the compliance team side of things needs to be as sophisticated to be able to ingest all of this type of information, prioritize it, make sure that there's enough time built in somehow in the speed of lightning, which everything goes, to be able to think really carefully and critically when it matters um, and exercise the usual traditional legal skill sets and compliance skill sets that you would normally think of as legal and compliance. You have to take that extra step of building in the time to do it in a world where the data is moving so quickly and it's just massive. God, how would it work for, you know, Eric, Allison, Howard, myself, you know, people who are like, you know, 29 years old and, you know, we have, and we don't know, like, you don't know this. Are you, are, are we lost or can we reskill? Like, what do, you, what do we do? You know, I, when I think about the, the team that I have, I have a range of folks, um, both from a, diversity spectrum on an ethnicity level, coming from all different walks of life, including from a pure legal thinker all the way to a very, very tech savvy data analytics person. And it's the diversity of skill set and the diversity of background and the diversity of age that together creates a problem solving sort of brew out of which we can think through what is the most effective processes, tools, people, mindset, judgment that we can put against these things to build something new. And that's what I do every day. And it's the creative part of my job. Um, that's really exciting. And what that means is, Jack, there's room for everybody who has the kind of energy and skills and smarts that want to sort of devote it to this kind of problem solving. It's just a little bit different problem solving than traditionally. How are you? Do you find that? Sure. First of all, I don't, I don't turn 29 until next week, so a little <laughs> early. Um, but I, th I think what Carolyn says is is wise because it is a larger tent, but that also includes folks that have fundamental skills that are still expected by regulators and, and shareholders, whatever the case may be, uh, to know what good looks like. So the volatility is much faster, the technology is much deeper and broader, and, and that's where AI and other surveillance tools come in, but they still need to be measured against a board-approved risk appetite, a risk assessment that determines what the risk appetite is as to what's high, medium, or low. Policies still need to be um, documented and trained to shape behavior and, and the right ethical uh, activity, but those tools now, um, Excel just isn't going to cut it, so to speak. It's It's got to be real AI type uh, tools um, so that the, the speed can be analyzed, but more importantly, acted upon and, and escalated where material. That's exactly Go ahead, Howard. Sorry about that. Jack, I, <laughs> I, I think one of the things that Carolyn raised is just so important, which is how you build that team right? Diversity is obviously a key point, but making sure that you have folks that each have a different lens on what the issue is, because you, you, you can't look, whether it's securities trading, whether or not it's sports betting, um, or, or many of the other issues that we're seeing online now, people they bring different perspectives, and whether or not age or background adds to those, but just what do you do with the data? And, and how do you do it? And how do you look at it? And how do you cut it? And we've all spoken about AI and robotics for a couple of years now. 
unfortunately, I don't think from the tools or the vendors that we've that, that are out there have, that we've seen the perfect solution. Each of us are going about it our own ways. But I think that's when you talk about, you know, from an employment standpoint, from a career path standpoint, and how do we build the team and the framework as, as a leader, that's what we need to look at. We need to give our team the right tools, but we need to have people that have that diversity and the different lens and the different perspectives and are agile. And, and consultants love the term agile, but when I say agile, <clears throat> they're looking at one thing today and then all of a sudden tomorrow, something totally different occurs, right? If you would have said six months ago that we would see a run on a stock because of a, a bulletin board on Pinterest or Reddit or something like, we, we all would have sort of just said, oh, that's interesting. I don't know, we'll think about it for a little bit, right? But but people, yeah, you have to have the right people that can react when these situations come up. That's interesting. Would you suggest, Eric, and, and by the way, so Howard and Eric are very modest. They both have been CCOs of really top organizations. Howard at Barclays, Lehman Brothers, CIT, you know, Eric at BNP Paribas most recently, G, uh, he's a GE executive. And so, so they're being humble. I'm not, I'm, I'm a self, shameless self-promoter. So I'll promote, I'll be your hype guys and, and kind of give some color. So they have a ton of experience doing that. Now, would you suggest people maybe go back to school, like go to NYU with Allison and maybe pick up some sort of degree or certificate or try to learn about data analytics you know, Python, R, whatever, to supplement that just in case, especially if let's say, if let's say you're in your early mid thirties and you have 30 more years to go, does it make sense to invest a little bit? So you, you, you know, you feel, and I know you're saying that you have people from all different kinds of spectrums, but just to make sure you have those skills, is that, is that worth doing? Do you think for some people, Allison, are you seeing that when people go, you know, to NYU and say, Hey, listen, I, I, I want to make sure I'm bulletproof in my career. Uh, I mean, sure. There's I, I don't teach data analytics. Um, I teach MBAs um, and mm -hmm. undergrads professional responsibility and leadership. There are a lot of people doing part-time MBAs at the moment. I think obviously fears um, about retention and take up in the education industry with the pandemic and, and NYU relies a lot on international students, but actually MBA applications have gone up. I think a lot of people are um, concluding that this is quite a good time to pause your career and do an MBA. Um, and an MBA is, of course, one of the best reasons out there to pivot your career. On data analytics, I'm sorry, Jack, not my thing. <laughs> uh, one, I, I teach at Fordham Law and, and just like uh, Allison, it's it's, it is important to, to keep learning, um, whether formally with, with the school or just on the job or just in the news. That one, because times are changing, skills are needed, uh, but it's, it's important to not forget the fundamentals as, as well. Um, behavioral compliance is not just the trend, it's, it's the reality. Then the question is, um, will rules be principles-based or prescriptive or a little bit of both? So to Howard's point, it's important to, to be nimble, have the tools to monitor the social media so that no one is just sitting behind a machine looking for all the important things on, on the news, but the machine is doing it for you. But it, again, it, it'll take people to assess what does all this data really mean at the end of the day? Also, more people go to law school as, as well as they're going for an MBA, because maybe when they graduate, they feel there's not a lot of jobs out there, or you have a job, but you just want to add some more value. Are you seeing a big pickup at Fordham? A big pickup for sure, certainly in the compliance program. And these are folks from uh, the businesses. That's the most encouraging people, business people wanting to be compliance people. I'm, I'm thrilled about you that. Yes, absolutely. They're the best compliance people in many ways because they know the product, they know the systems. Um, it, it's not easy to learn the rules, but it's harder to learn the products and the system in, in my view because um, there's a lot more complexity. And then as Carolyn said, um, learning from the kids, so to speak, because they grew up with social media. They, they, they use these things every, every day for everything. And um, 
that's compliance today going forward. So do you think for someone who's trying to figure out who's watching this or, you know, after this is aired, we put it back on social media, are they, and this might not be a fair question, but are they better off? You used to be compliance people who had JDs would have a lot of opportunities, but is it still going to be that way? Or do you think not only do you need a JD, but as Carolyn was saying, you really have to have a real comfort level with technology too. I think there's room for everybody. I really do. I, I don't. I don't mean to be glib about the thing. I, I need everybody. I need. <laughs> but is it? Is it? I need yeah, the old where you are because it's fast growing, as opposed to other companies that aren't. You know what I mean? Is it everywhere? You think? Or I, don't, I mean, look. I I saw it at J P Morgan too. I think yeah. that you really have to have the old school, as Eric said. You have to have the fundamentals. You need yes. to if you're if you're practicing law. You need to know how to be a really, really good lawyer and be thoughtful and use judgment, be good at writing, all of those very important components. If you're a compliance person, same thing. It's your judgment. It's your common sense. It's your ability to ask questions and keep digging until you're done. Um, but you have to be able to think about applying those skills to, as Howard mentioned, a very quickly and agilely moving world. So the the, the topic upon which you are digging in and using those fundamental skills changes all the time, but it's the fundamental skills that are always going to be applicable. It's not so much that you need to learn how to code or become a data analytics tech expert. It's that you have to not be scared of that when that's the thing to which yeah. you're applying your common mm -hmm. sense and your otherwise honed fundamental skills. Absolutely. And Jack, I, I would totally agree with everything both Eric and Carolyn said. Look, continuing education is just so important for everyone, right? Obviously, in the in the securities industry, we have registrations and continuing education requirements on what I would almost consider the basics or certain fundamentals when you have a license. But you know, in this day and age, you can't just say, Oh, I heard about TikTok. I would encourage you have to go out, you have to see it. What is it? How's it work? Why does it work? Because However you want to apply what you're doing in a legal or a compliance profession these days, you have to understand how the information travels and what people are using it for. And uh, years ago, you know, we would sit down, you'd sit with a trader for a little while, you'd want to understand, okay, the order comes in, you clock a ticket, you transmit the order, you write it down, there was a fail. So now you do have to have an understanding of how the system works, when the order comes in, how is it processed, what, what's it feed to, what back office system, because that's where the data and the trade reporting and everything else occurs. And it's a little more difficult in the current environment to get people's hands sort of, you know, on those things. But most importantly, you know, self-improvement, continually understanding where the technology is, where it's going, what are the abilities some of the things that we can do with technology now, you couldn't even fathom five, 10 years ago. So you really just, you know, it's, it's like a car. You got to take it for a drive and get comfortable with it. Another piece of this, and this goes back to where we were in the beginning, is that, you know, 10, 20 years ago, the regulators themselves were not particularly savvy. I mean, you think about e-discovery as an example. The judges didn't understand it. The regulators didn't understand it, and the lawyers needed to explain it that it was okay. And that was sort of the the big black box of the time. However, you know, I'm dating myself, but um, you know, now the regulators are more savvy. They're no longer satisfied with a, it went into the black box and then it came out. They want to not only they expect you to understand what happens in that box, and they actually understand it themselves. And so the regulatory environment um, has sort of upped its game as it relates to the technology pieces of this, which then has an you know, impact obviously on the way compliance and legal has to engage with it. So it's very, I mean, it's very interesting. And I think the continuing education, I don't know whether it is sitting at an NYU in a school or at a Fordham Law School where you're learning how to do this. I think a lot of it is, is a oh, mindset. Job. Anyway, that's, mindset, yeah. wait, 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 that's the, they, they work there, you know what I'm saying? So. No, I mean, I think it's important that, that people go to school and get the fundamental skills yeah. where they should, but I also think it's a mindset about being open to applying those in another, yes. in another way. And, and Jack, I think with what Carolyn said, 
you, you take a look at, at all of this, right? And it's, again, how do you apply it? How do you use it? But, you know, as, as she was pointing out, the regulators, you have the black box, they expect you to understand that they, they have a lot more knowledge than people think they do. And I think, you know, the SEC in particular has spent a lot of time over the last probably eight years getting that knowledge. And as Eric said, risk assessments, and change management on the technology, and then also validation, right? So you might have a compliance testing function, but very important is the audit function, or as we call it, the third line of defense to come in and validate what you think is actually going on with your data, data with your information, and ensuring that it's actually behaving and performing the way that you, you think it is. We can't forget the businesses either. I mean, the first line of defense, they're the ones that manage the risk. It's their clients, um, it's their behavior at the end of the day. And Jack, I don't know if you wanna bring that up with Alice and not to put you on the spot, but just how conduct and behavior and ethics, whether it's gonna play an even bigger role uh, going forward in this environment. Well, that's to me. Yeah, um, sorry. <laughs> yeah, sorry, I was confused. I thought it was to Jack. Um, well, I was waiting for Jack to ask, but I guess I, I was mean, asking the question. Um, most, I don't know if most is actually uh, true in terms of the data. Compliance Suite just did a survey, but a lot of compliance departments now call themselves ethics and compliance. There is increasingly the assumption that compliance owns ethical culture and is responsible for a culture of compliance. That's what tone at the top means. That's what regulators are looking for. Regulators couldn't emphasize more that paper processes don't work in a vacuum. And indeed, many companies have got caught up in enormous ethics scandals that had best practice compliance programs. So the compliance team can be doing a brilliant job and the compliance process can be perfect in its own terms. But what happens in the rest of an organization is, is an open question. So what is very, very common is that if you are a salesperson, you have a message coming from the chief compliance officer sign all these documents and agree to all these things. And if you don't, you're going to get fired. And then you have a message from your boss of, and make sure you grow your business 30%. And I don't wanna hear that it's difficult or that the market's corrupt or that the regulatory issues are complicated. And if you don't do that, you're gonna get fired. And so if you don't think about things like how you incentivize and compensate people and the quality of leadership and that kind of thing, you're basically putting employees in this position where they're being forced to choose which rule to break and that is explains really a lot of what goes wrong in organizations so eric's right the shift to culture and behavior i think is massively important um and and the compliance industry seems to be uh finally embracing this which is incredibly welcome there is tons of academic research showing what works and what doesn't and much of it is of great practical use and doesn't make its way into to real companies but I would actually, from the perspective of ethics, say there's an even more significant trend going on, which is that whether we perceive a business is ethical or not has far, far less to do um, with whether it's breaking the law or not than it used to. So, you know, if you are perceived to be manipulating the market or to have a toxic business model or you are you don't pay your workers enough so they have to get benefits or you're causing a lot of horrible impacts on the climate, you'll be perceived as unethical even if you haven't broken any laws. So this perception of what an ethical business is and isn't has shifted really, really dramatically. Young people have very different expectations of what values their businesses should have beyond compliance. So saying, we're just gonna focus on shareholder value, thanks very much, and we don't wanna hear about all this soft stuff is not really gonna cut it anymore, I would argue. It's so interesting to say that, Alison, because my kids are Gen Zs and they know all their friends and people I know in that age group. For them, it's so important. What's the culture of the company? Meaning, are they, what kind of social causes do they go, be, you know, are they involved with? You know, are they, do they care about racial inequality? Do they care about wealth inequality? And they're looking for those things. So I, I hear what you say, it resonates because 
it's not like it used to be when you, when you define it a certain way. Now this ethics and culture really spends about what's this company all about and people are going to decide, am I going to work there or not? Yeah, I think young people are doing their due diligence right. and they're not just looking, by the way, at what social causes the company mm. supports. They're looking at the core business model. So I don't think it's enough for the core right. business models to still be doing the same thing. And here's all the great charities we're donating to. True. One of the things I, I talk about all the time is that there were protests at a Paul Weiss recruitment event at Harvard Law School. So that's Harvard Law students, not a bunch of radical hippies protesting at Paul Weiss holding a recruitment event at Harvard because Paul Weiss works for ExxonMobil. That is the kind of thing that was incredibly difficult to imagine even five years ago. And I think there's going to be more and more of it. And, and Jack, just to follow up on that, one of the interesting questions that, that we ask ourselves a lot is, and I think people years ago used to say, can we do it? And that's one element. Then there's the other question, which is, should we do it? Right. And I, and I think when you, when you just stop and you pause and you think about that for a moment, that goes back to a lot of the issues that Allison raised, right? Just because you can do it doesn't mean you should do it. And, and whether or not you should do it has many other factors involved. Exactly. And, and, and legal compliance is, comes in. Yeah, so legal compliance is clean. Like it's pretty clear if it's illegal, you don't do it. If it's legal, it's okay. That's been the way we, we thought about business ethics for a very long time. As long as you don't break the law, decisions to maximize profit are ethically neutral. That's what Milton Friedman argued. We are not in that era anymore. We're now in an era where big business say we should consider the interests of all stakeholders. So it's not just about should you do it, it's also what right thing should you do? What issue should you prioritize? Most companies are getting yelled at to do a million things on a million social initiatives. You can't do them all. How do you prioritize? How do you focus? How do you position around these things? I think is increasingly um, becoming a very, very uh, important issue. Compliance should have a central seat here. Perhaps they're not the only people. I think this is fundamentally a question for senior leadership and it's fundamentally a question about what people like to call purpose. This idea of purpose is very, very fashionable at the moment. Starts I, with the board. I think it's exactly. great for compliance with Allison just said. Yes. And mm -hmm. here's why. Because when it was a black and white issue where the business side, the first line would say, the question is whether it's legal or not. So I'm going to do it. I'm going to ask legal, can I do it? And then legal becomes a blocker instead of a helper. And if they can, then they go about and do their business. But if it isn't black and white and it involves the should, then the first line, the business is on the hook for thinking through the should question. And legal can't give them a black and white answer and they can't use them as, as a sort of scapegoat. And they also it brings the two together in a partnership. Whereas before legal was just the yes or no, because it was black or white. Now they have to think through all of these ethical issues mm -hmm. together and it creates what you hope. Hopefully it creates what you hope, which is this engaged first line who thinks about this should and partners with compliance in a proactive way, which is the ideal model. So while it may be more challenging because it's not just a legal question anymore. The fact that it has this ethical should component is great for compliance officers everywhere who want to create a really engaged, robust first line of defense and have management be the ones uh, focusing on this stuff. The key is making sure the first line is also accountable for the decisions that they make, not throw legal compliance and the second line under the proverbial bus, so to speak. And that's where the tent can be quite large. And that's where also the fundamentals are important to assign and document roles and responsibilities around decisions. And when things hopefully don't go wrong, but because it's so gray as Carolyn and, and Allison are pointing out, roles have to be um, critically followed, documented and followed. And I think, yeah, when Allison was, was chatting before, she spoke about the culture of the organization. I think we all have mentioned at some point culture. And that's why it's so important. I think Eric said it starts with the board, the executive leadership team, and, and the understanding of every employee of what their role and responsibility is 
in, in ensuring that the organization acts and behaves in the most ethical way possible and not just to the ethic of that organization, but what the ethic of the industry or society, if you wanted to take this to a bigger conversation, <clears throat> expects and, 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 and really is asking for today. A great point. The best, if I could throw this out to everybody, where do you see with this new administration, Gary Gensler is going to be most likely the SEC. You've probably seen Elizabeth Warren uh, going, at, I don't want to say going after the SEC, but really sending strongly worded messages to them to get to get, to get get off their duffs and do their jobs, is an actual quote which she said to them. Where do you see this going? Do you think it's rhetoric or there's going to be a lot of changes in the air? I think there's going to be a lot of changes. I, I think this is more than just a, a passing thing. I think ESG in whatever form or label is is here to stay because this is generational. Um, it's global, and um, there's just been there's too much at stake. I, I guess is is the best way to describe it. And and the tools aren't there yet. Um, and so therefore it's prone for more accidents. And um, there's so much visibility and popularity in watching, I call it the tennis match between the game stoppers and the short sellers. And um, Congress is watching, the regulators are watching. And I don't think they're on their doves. I think they're surveilling all this activity as, as well. And there's gonna be enforcement out of this in some form or another. And you jump on it quickly. Yes. Jack, yes. you, you, uh, I, I think I said it earlier. <clears throat> it's not like we've been operating in the Wild West for the last couple of years, right? There, we have a lot of good regulators that have spent a lot of time ensuring that markets operate effectively, efficiently, and that there are rules and regulations and constructs where everyone can participate in an equal way. I think sometimes the focus shifts a little bit, and I think with a new administration, it's always the opportunity to take a different focus or a different look. And as I also said, um, and I think a few of you agreed, with the changes in technology, with the changes that we're seeing in the marketplace and the ability for people to literally pick up their iPhone and trade at no cost and do a couple of things that again, you couldn't do a few years ago. I think that just brings a whole new set of issues. And it takes a little while for everyone to figure out what are the right controls and constructs that you need to put in place to ensure that things are operating properly and efficiently. And hopefully that will be the focus of the administration in, in, in the short term uh, and, and over the next few years. It's interesting. So you think, so it's really more about where they're going to allocate their resources and put their focus moving forward. Like, do you think there's going to be a lot of oversight, let's say, at FanDuel or the emerging cannabis industry? Do you, do you all have a sense of where that focus might go to? Well, there's a big conversation about the regulation of social media platforms, right? Mm. Um, so that um, I think is one of the highest stakes um, kind of discussions out there. Um, I'm not sure about things like um, like Fangio. I'll leave that one to Carolyn. But there are a lot of businesses emerging and a lot of industries. We might think about also biotech, things like that, where progress and technology is galloping ahead. It's inherently very difficult for regulators to keep up in the in the in issues like social media and AI and technology in general. One of the issues is that anybody that's really brilliant on this stuff works for a private company and there isn't the expertise very often in the government to design smart regulation. So that really worries me. That really worries me um, about all these very technologically advanced industries, but especially ones where there's a, a handful of really dominant players, um, which is what we have uh, currently with the internet. Because um, if you're good at AI, you're probably already working for Google. And, and what we need is people that understand how to regulate Google. Oh. Alison, do you think that the you know regulators, law lawmakers could really fight back or take on Facebook or Google? Are they too powerful at this point? Or they could, they because it seems like every time they go before they bring like Mark Zuckerberg or someone before Congress, nothing happens. 
Do you think well, they should... are kind of too big to fail, right? right? In in their global businesses, um, and I, I you know, I, I I don't want to kind of compare them directly to banks, but there are a lot of countries, particularly developing countries, where Facebook is the internet. So I think much as U.S. regulators might wish to close it down, break it up, whatever, if Facebook went out of business, that would have a really devastating effect. We saw this just now in Australia; they closed down news. They also closed down huge amounts of community community sites and stuff about access to the COVID vaccine um, and all this stuff. So I think we do need very smart and careful regulation on issues like what content is allowed online and how you define terrorism and hate speech and that kind of thing. One of the problems is that this these are issues that we don't want private companies deciding. Lots of discomfort with the idea that Twitter can decide to take down Trump. Is this really the job of a private company? But then we don't necessarily want the government deciding either, whether you're Republican or Democrat or how you feel about presidents, you probably don't want the president that you disagree with deciding what is and isn't a hate group and a terrorist group and that kind of thing. So we're in this really interesting situation where we don't want business doing it and we don't want government doing it. And so we need a new paradigm for governance. There's a very good book by a guy called David Kay called Speech Police that I would really recommend to anyone wanting to get a grip on this conversation. I think the new paradigm is a greater public-private partnership. I think the COVID was a good lesson learned as to how well public and private collaboration can really accelerate and also uh, get to the right balance. Um, I think Allison is, is spot on because one, the whole debate of net neutral, that that's that's kind of a shield, if you will. And at the same time, you have governments outside the US that are really cracking down on the Facebooks, the Googles, et cetera, particularly around antitrust, data privacy. These are laws that have been around forever. And so all these high tech, whether big tech or FinTech startups, they can't forget that the speed limit is still 55 miles an hour and they, they, they can't drive around in their Ferraris at 200 miles an hour, they still have to worry about uh, collateral damage and, and fundamental laws and rules. But it, it'll take, in my view, the public and the private together to, to sort this through. And, and Jack, I think you, you pointed out a couple of interesting things, um, you know, especially with social media, and, and Eric just mentioned this, there's been a lot of focus on privacy and data protection over the last couple of years. There's a question about, as we've seen certain states make um, certain regulations and laws around data protection in the U.S., but whether or not um, we'll have one set of standards that everyone will look to. Um, same thing, you, you asked the question about cannabis. There's a, a, a lot of question and debate around that. And cryptocurrencies are one that everyone is trying to figure out as well. And I'm sure there will be others that all of us are trying to figure out. So it's, it's an interesting evolution and the question is, what's the right balance, right? Because we do have freedom of speech issues. Different countries have different approaches. Um, but the question is, how do we all operate um, in, in, a, in a way where the information moves and flows, but yet, again, it's whether or not the information is correct and being used in, in, in the, for the right purposes. That's, that's great. You know, Citrus, my takeaway from what I'm hearing uh, as a let's say outside observer, is there's a lot to do. <laughs> it seems like there's, you know, when you pull back, you're talking about social media, you're talking about Facebook, you're talking about Twitter, you're talking about biotech companies because now healthcare is such an important thing that we're, we're focused on. Old school Wall Street, FanDuel, cannabis, like so for the practitioners in in this area. I'm kind of coming away very optimistic for people because it seems with all this, that means there's opportunity, there's growth, there's, it's dynamic, right? And like everything I'm hearing from you that there's just, it's just so many pieces to it. And we're doing this, it's, it's, we hit about an hour and, and we probably didn't even scratch the surface of all this. And if you don't mind, can I ask, this might be an unfair question, but moving forward, do you have, like if you had a crystal ball to think, okay, here's some of the things that's gonna play out, you know? over the next three, six, nine months, whatever the case, do you have a sense of where there's gonna be a lot of action, a lot of movement, 
so that for people, and this is particularly for people who are trying to reinvent themselves, who maybe lost their jobs, people who uh, maybe are working but hate what they do, or they're worried about their company, want to pivot. Do you have a sense of where the puck is going so they can go in that direction? Does that make sense? Does that? Sure. Jack, just before we, we, we answer that, if I could just say one thing, you mentioned the, the new paradigm, right? I got really concerned when one of my kids told me that there was a TikTok on SPACs. <laughs> oh my just, God. Just think about that. Yes. Yeah. TikTok on SPACs. I mean, you know, I guess I first heard about SPACs about 15 years ago and, and we were doing some work around them and then, you know, they quieted down. Now, all of a sudden, when you, when you have someone who says, hey, dad, there's a TikTok on SPACs. How do we invest in them? And I'm just oh like, my God. oh my God. <laughs> Howard, when you talked about TikTok, I wanted to bring it up, but then you know how conversation shifted. So if I was on, you go on TikTok and you have, and yes, I downloaded it because, you know, I have way too much free time. So uh, there's, there's these like 17 year olds, 18 year olds from their bedroom pontificating on what to invest, how to invest. It's, it's, if you, you, you got to check it. If you don't mind, I would say check out like TikTok and you watch these people or Instagram too. They're experts and your mind is like, what do they even know what they're talking about? Who's scripting it for them? Who's behind it? Then if you go to Wall Street Bets, they now mm -hmm. have, on Reddit, they have over 9 million people on that subreddit, 9 million. And the conversations are just nuts. Hilarious. Nuts. Hilarious, but scary. Yeah. Every website that Jack just mentioned should be in your uh, IT security blocking at work. So only do that on your personal computer. Yeah. So we just, so we did, I'm sorry to interrupt, but it's just when you brought it up, it's just like when you look at it, it's just, you can't, it's hard, right? When your son is bringing up about his SPAC, it's like, where is this coming from? So where do you see for people who want to re-navigate their careers? You know, um, any suggestions like where they should take a look at? Bandle definitely, for sure. Bandle yeah, has lots yeah. of job openings. Yeah. Please right. come work for me. <laughs> <laughs> Carolyn, did you get my resume, by the way? I know, right? Come on over. <laughs> um, maybe I'll take a first stab. One, I used to walk into someone's office and they used to have one of those eight balls where you shake <laughs> it up and they say yes or no or maybe so. Um, so I would say a couple things. One, the risks are real. You know, it's it's fun talking about it, but the risks are real, and and we can't forget cybersecurity and cyber crimes and everything we've been talking about. If you think about, it, is about technology, and so these are skills where it's there's no more bright red line between cybersecurity, AML, fraud, compliance, legal, the business. And on the one hand, you need the clear responsibilities, but the skill sets are much more universal. And cybersecurity um, is real. It, it, we've seen attacks on, on government critical infrastructures and the blurring of these different industrial sectors with the banks in the middle and technology accelerating these risks. So cyber skills, technology skills from a control point of view combined with understanding and not forgetting the compliance fundamentals, I, I think is important. We can't forget these fundamentals, um, but cybersecurity I think is important. I, I agree with that totally. And I also think that areas around identity management, there are lots of companies that are cropping up to try and help differentiate between real humans and bots and all of these different uh, threats to companies that are coming in so many different forms. And then there are companies being created to mitigate those threats, but all of the skills in that sort of border between the dangerous outside world and the hopefully safer uh, inside of a company world and, and all of the critical data to the lifeblood of a company and protecting it is probably mm -hmm. where the if you shook the eight ball, where where you'd wanna where you'd wanna go, I'd say. I've I've always been bad in my career predicting the future. Is I worked for the largest bankrupt entity in the history of Wall Street, but that's a whole different story. <laughs> um, but uh, look look what I would say is you know Eric touched upon this. Fraud is really such a big issue. I was reading an article the other day that ninety thousand packages a day are stolen in New York City which is just a, a, a massive amount, right? Yeah. And 
when, when you think about the construct of Amazon and the ring doorbell and how they're trying to put the pieces together to, to make a seamless delivery. And, and from what we do in financial services, where we are constantly looking at fraud, and I have to say the fraudsters get better every day, right? Two-factor authentication, they figure out how to get in much earlier on, change a phone number, you authenticate back to the fraudster. Like, you know, th these things are constantly changing. So IT security, um, fraud, but Jack, I think the most important thing and what I might tell folks is find something you want to do, just do it really well. That's great advice, yeah. And, and yeah. you know, if you're gonna do it, take the time, focus your attention and, and be the best at it, whatever it is. And hopefully then everything moves along for you. I couldn't agree with that more, I think you know, your ability to be always interested and always learning goes up drastically if you care about the thing you're interest, supposed to be interested in and supposed to be learning about. If you don't care, it's really hard to then be agile and change with the times. If you're into it and you're excited about it, it doesn't matter what comes your way. It's a new adventure. It's true. More fun yeah. while you're at it. You've all seen it in your organization. Well, you have someone who maybe is doing something, but you get a feeling they don't have a passion for it. They're doing it because maybe it pays well, or maybe it's a high status job. But you can tell the people the difference between people who just love it and excited and they can't wait to go to work and others who are like, you know, it's a job. And the ones who are excited tend to write, and you've all seen this, right? I imagine the people who are excited, they come in, they're motivated, they get really good at what they do. They're the ones who get a lot of opportunities and they can keep growing their career and keep it moving forward. And Jack, I think you just hit the nail on the head, right? It's the difference of having a job yeah. and it's the difference of having a career. And, and also as senior managers, our responsibility is some people just want a job, but some people want a career and it's how do we career path them and how do we help them and how do we encourage and mentor and continue to grow? And getting back to the earlier point, how do we educate, right? The first day of work should not be the day you know the most, right? We have to make sure that we're continuing to improve people's skills and knowledge and give them opportunity. And managers have to be open to be willing to learn from the people they hire, but also the people that are already there. Um, it's, it's a two-way dialogue going forward, if not already. Alice, do you have any thoughts for people who are trying to reinvent Pivot in terms uh, of- I mean, yeah, there was a big focus from all the other speakers on the kind of tech and security and data. So I would have a very different perspective on that. But maybe I would what I would say, I guess, is that compliance is increasingly moving into adjacent spaces or at minimum needing to collaborate with adjacent spaces. So um, I would look at what the big risks are and the big changes are facing a particular industry and I would focus there. So clearly if you work for Fangio, um, you've heard from Calorie and what you need to know. There are other industries um, or other companies where very close alignment with risk and enterprise risk would be a really good idea or understanding behavior and change management skills because there isn't enough senior traction or visibility from the compliance team and compliance won't work if it just sits with its own perfect processes but no one in the first line of defense cares. Um, and then, I mean, there's so much going on in, in the ESG space that, um, you know, for an industry like food or apparel, I would look at the huge amounts going on in supply chain oversight. Um, the, the pandemic has really revealed the importance of a really resilient supply chain. Um, a lot of the time, supply chain oversight happens in procurement, compliance doesn't even have a look in, there is a lot of duplication of processes, and really supply chain is where the rubber hits the road on this kind of blend of the voluntary and regulated, and is becoming aggressively more regulated from the perspective of human rights and modern slavery and trafficking. So supply chain would be something, I think things like climate risk, if you're in um, a high emitting business, but it, it would involve thinking, I think, quite strategically about the industry and the big pressure pressures, both reputational and regulatory facing that industry, and then thinking, hmm, what skill set do I really need? But there's obviously a really kind of 
positive thing going on in terms of compliance. I'm going back to kind of Carolyn, I need it all, she said. <laughs> so she um, she's not saying that being a lawyer or, or having a compliance qualification won't be useful, but she's looking for diversity. She's looking mm -hmm. for creativity. And so maybe there's a little bit less of a kind of um, binary thinking and, and maybe recruiters will be a bit more imaginative about this person may not look like a perfect fit for compliance, but wow, they seem to have some useful skills. Mm -hmm. So I think we need to be a bit more creative. And, uh, and a lot of the time companies will succeed or fail because of their ability to coordinate across functions and departments rather than because there's excellence in compliance specifically. So I like to advise compliance officers to think of themselves as, as, as change agents. Um, and that might also open up a, a, a whole load of um, education and learning that could happen there. Totally. It, I, I call it the fire in the belly as, as well as just that passion. Um, and you could have little or no compliance experience, but that passion can make all the difference in terms of how much they learn, how much they apply, uh, how well they can interact with other functions because that enthusiasm and willingness to go that extra yard um, can be contagious because it has to be firm wide. Management has to invest in the right compliance people at the end of the day, not just throw bodies at, at a particular problem. They have to prevent that problem. And so there isn't a lot of time, but it's, it's important, I think, at this juncture, at all levels of management, at all different functions, and again, starting with the board and management to invest in compliance, invest in the tools, um, because it's not going to slow down, I don't think, anytime soon. And, and I think just to add to that, there's also the element of rewarding good behavior. I think earlier yes. we spoke about conduct and ethics and what happens with an organization when you don't do the right thing. The question is, when you do the right thing, how do we make sure that we um, that, that we let people know about it and, and, and you use it as an example and you call it out? And you know, I'm thinking about a very specific situation I was involved in a few years ago where, unfortunately, a person didn't do the right thing. The person sitting next to that person absolutely did the right thing. And, and we made sure because this is how people always measure themselves. At the end of the year, there was a special line item and we worked with human resources where the person got called out in their compensation summary, where it said, because you did this, here's, here's something that's coming your way. That's great. So I really appreciate it. An hour flew by, actually over an hour already, flew by and, and you offered such great actual advice. Uh, before we depart, any did there's anything Eric and I maybe didn't ask that you guys would like to share? And then also, if you don't, if you're okay with it, what we do is the LinkedIn Lives will kind of edit it, repost it, and clean up any you know rough spots. Would you be open for people to contact you? I wouldn't want to send them if you're not comfortable because if it is, we could you could share whatever if through LinkedIn or where have you. So if people have questions or or want to connect, would that be okay? Uh, any last bit, any, anything that you want to add that maybe Eric and I didn't ask that you kind of want to share or? I've got one thing that's just amusing. Okay. So on the, on the, Carolyn is looking for everybody. So I was hiring for a lawyer job. Um, yeah, I want a young lawyer and you know, you get a million resumes of young lawyer at law firm, right? Yeah. So the woman that I hired was a young woman at law firm. I'd never really done anything around process or controls. You know, just a lawyer, a litigator, uh, tried cases. She's a car mechanic. I was like, I want her. Wait, she's a car mechanic? Car mechanic. I hired her. I was like, and she's the best. She is fantastic at this job. But that kind of skill set, I can, I can take a part, car <laughs> and put it back together again. I'm like, she is on my team. Process. Wow. Process engineering. That's so interesting. She's awesome. That's because <laughs> you don't think you would have those different skills that would come together, but it's amazing. That's amazing. And I guess, Carolyn, is that also a testament for people who do these interesting things when they do interview, they should kind of bring it up and not hide it. Because I could easily see someone being, I don't want to say embarrassed, but uncomfortable saying I was a mechanic because they may feel, oh, I'm going to FanDuel. I don't know if they're going to do it, but that's, so that's interesting. 
Yep. Takes all kinds. All right. So in addition to going to different packages. So what I'm learning, in addition to going to NYU MBA school with Allison and going to Fordham Law, you know, with Eric, you also <laughs> learn how to be a mechanic. And these are the kind of things. All right, that's cool. That makes sense. That's awesome. Well, great. Hey, I really appreciate and I I, I know all the people who are watching now and who will be watching it later, you gave some really good advice. And and I'm especially appreciative because speaking to people all day long, both personally and professionally, I'm sure you all do this too. During a pandemic, a lot of people are isolated. They feel lost. They don't know what to do. They're not in the office or they're not with their colleagues. They don't see their families. They don't see their coworkers anymore. So they feel a little adrift. And what, what I'm trying to do with this whole LinkedIn series, you know, this is more compliance right but also do career oriented ones too is just to kind of shed light on what's out there because they need it and and i think i really appreciate because you were so also eloquent and walking it through and the cool thing is everyone had such a different perspective that we could reach all sorts of different people and i think at the end of the day it's really cool because i think a lot of people are going to get some ideas get some thoughts and if any if, if nothing else too for me i was very encouraged you know, especially Allison, when you start kind of you know riffing on all these new areas, all these other areas that need help, it's kind of one of those things that wakes you up and say, "Wow, yeah," because you get in your bubble and you're just thinking. And I think most people in their careers do that; they're thinking of their own little silo. And sometimes you need to hear from other people to say, "Wait a minute, my skills could transfer over. It could go into all these other areas," and that's kind of empowering. So then, if they're stuck and they can't, you know, not go anywhere, they say, "Wait a minute, let me try these other things." So I think I think you you're gonna help a lot of folks. So I really appreciate. Thank you, thank you all. You know for showing up. And uh, and hey, the invitation is open. We plan to do a lot of these because we're doing our best, in particular during the pandemic, to help as many people. So you're always welcome back if you want to chat. Thanks so, thank so much. You. Thank you. Back. Thank you for Thanks. putting this together. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you guys. Well done. Have a great Take day. Take care. Bye. Bye bye. Hope you enjoyed this episode of the Week Recruiter Podcast. If you want to check out other great content from WeCruiter, make sure to visit us at WeCruiter.io. That's W-E-C-R-U-I-C-R dot I-O. We offer tons of great resources for job seekers and professionals, so make sure to check us out today.